Hello, and welcome to the Osterholm Update, COVID-19, a weekly podcast on the COVID-19 pandemic with Dr. Michael Osterholm. Dr. Osterholm is an internationally recognized medical detective and director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, or CIDRAP, at the University of Minnesota. In this podcast, Dr. Osterholm will draw on more than 45 years of experience investigating infectious disease outbreaks to provide straight talk on the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Chris Dahl, reporter for CIDRAP News, and I'm your host for these conversations. It's been another busy week, Mike, and we have a lot to get to on this week's episode of the Osterholm Update, including a look at the muddled pandemic picture in the United States. But before we get started, is there someone you'd like to dedicate this episode to? Thank you, Chris. It's good to be with you again. Uh, yes. Um, when we think of today about the frontline healthcare workers, uh, you know, we often talk about the doctors and nurses, particularly those in intensive care, who are incredible heroes in this entire war against this virus. And, uh, and we can never uh, not remember day after day all the heroic things they do. But I think sometimes us, the professionals, uh, myself included, um, forget about those support staff that don't necessarily fit into what is often seen as the professional staff as such. And that includes, I think, today in intensive care, the area of orderlies and nurses' aides, who anybody who knows what goes on inside a hospital or a long-term care facility know that they are often the backbone of every response that occurs. They're the ones that are there um, in some very tough jobs. And so today I dedicate this to all the orderlies, nurses, aides, and the staff who provide uh, the kind of care that doesn't often get captured when we talk about the heroic doctors and nurses who are in our facilities. So today this one's for you. So over the past week, uh, there's been a rising concern over the surge of COVID-19 cases in states that reopened early. Uh, states like Arizona, Texas, and Florida are among the more than 20 states where infections are rising. But we've, we haven't seen an increase in some other states that reopened early, and uh, cases are actually declining in several states. What's going on? Well, if I could answer that question with accuracy and precision... Uh, I could probably hang up my shingle and say I'm done for the day. Um, it is, at best, very confusing. And this is one where I, I'm a little concerned that I see uh, people getting, I think, too far ahead of their headlights or at least over their skis in terms of trying to come up with answers of what's happening. Let's just take a step back and think about what we're seeing. Right now in the United States, if you look at the 50 states in the District of Columbia, we have 20 states where cases are increasing over the past seven days uh, in measurable ways. We have 11 where they're actually staying the same, not changing over the past seven days. And we have 20 where they're continuing to drop. This is almost the tale of two countries. And it's not just isolated to one geographic area, although the South and the West seems to be by far uh, more affected than the rest of the country. And to even give you some sense of just how confusing this has been, is that if you look at June 1st, two weeks ago, uh, on the seven-day average, 
which is a better way to look at this. You take the last seven days and average those numbers because we get these peaks and valleys that sometimes just within a week can give you very different data. Um, If you look at June 1st, we reported 22,238 cases per day on average. If you look at the cases as of June 15th for that same seven-day average, it's 22,351. So the only difference is less, a little more than 100 cases. Hasn't changed. If you look at deaths in on June 1st, again, seven-day average, there was on 1,019 deaths per day in the United States. If you look at June 15th, it's now 747, a reduction on average of almost 250 deaths a day. Now, if you looked at those numbers, you'd say, well, it looks like it's pretty flat. The deaths are coming down, although we know that they reflect activity that usually is anywhere from two to three weeks before that in terms of transmission. And you'd say, well, um, it's kind of like what we're seeing in the country, 20 up, 20 down, 11 kind of, you know, just level. And yet where we see the cases increasing, places like Florida, Texas, certain places in North Carolina, they are really almost on fire. There is really substantial transmission occurring. And I think that what this reflects, again, is our lack of understanding of what we're dealing with with this virus. And we just have to be honest and say that. We don't know. Um, We put forward uh, several months ago uh, our scenario planning document in which if you go to the CIDRAP viewpoint, uh, you'll find it. And it lays out how are we going to get from that 5% of the population that have been infected uh, to the 60 or 70% that likely will be required before you see herd immunity kick in or the slowing down of transmission. And, you know, we lay out uh, scenarios, no models, because I don't think there's any models that statistically can tell you what's going to happen. But in those scenarios, we include two different coronavirus scenarios, something that we just made up because no one's ever seen a coronavirus like this do what it's doing. And we said, well, what if in this case, the pandemic coronavirus was actually just in slow burn, just keeps going week after week, month after month. um, And what would that look like? We also said, well, what if it's more uh, dramatic than that? But you have these peaks and valleys almost like uh, uh, the foothills, where basically one month it may be more prominent in one region of the country or one country in the world, um, and then next month it's this one over here and it's that country over there. And But the key thing is it just keeps marching along, accumulating new cases, serious illnesses and deaths, and trying to get towards that 60 to 70% level we talk about. We didn't know. We said, but what if it's a, uh, a a virus that ends up acting like a pandemic influenza virus, where we do have quite good information about what they typically do when they arrive? Um, often in the first wave, and I'll define that in a moment, um, you'll see sporadic cases. And what I mean by that, not that they were just a few cases, some areas got hit quite hard, but it was not widespread throughout all the countries, even within states. Uh, And then if you look at those, typically they lasted up to several months. And then for reasons we have no idea why, basically the cases begin to disappear. There's very little activity. 
This is what defines a wave. It's when you have an increase in cases with a, a trough where the cases on their own, not a vaccine, in some cases you can say not even an intervention, um, just literally disappear. I, I just can't emphasize enough, we don't know why. Then they come back after two or three months, uh, in some cases with a vengeance, like we saw in 1918. Even in 2009 with H1N1, if you go back and look at those data, uh, for the emergence of this virus in March uh, into April, early May, and then we saw the case numbers decrease substantially, went through much of the summer without major activity, and then only in late August did we see a big uptick in cases with a very uh, large second wave, uh, far exceeding that of the first wave that lasted from the end of August until basically the middle of October, well before vaccine arrived and had any impact. And remember, back in 2009, we weren't telling people the social or physical distance. Uh, it was one of those situations where this is just what the virus did. We don't know why it did it. We did not have control over that. And so one of the challenges we have here is what's happening here. How much of it is what we're doing to basically reduce the virus activity in our communities? And I have no doubt, and I think the data will bear this out over time, that in those areas that have been on fire, it was really only through the physical distancing activities that it probably shaved cases off the top of that curve that could have very well taken that event over what I call the case cliff, where there are more cases needing ICU care than are beds or staff available. And that's what we want to avoid at all cost, at all cost. So, you know, I look at this on an international level and you see what's happening right now uh, First of all, in places like China, and I know we'll talk more about that later, but we're seeing resurgence of the virus there where everyone thought they had it under control. When we look at the hotspots right now, um, you know, we will, we're waiting for more data, but what we have right now suggests that New Delhi, India may be the hottest spot that's been on the earth, meaning exceeding that of Wuhan, New York City, the Lombardy region of Italy, uh, Madrid, I mean, London, really a substantial activity going on there right now. And just two months ago, everybody was saying, well, whatever India is doing, they're doing it right because there's no activity here. Um, we're seeing cases in Brazil that are in some ways almost like that that we're seeing in India right now. Uh, and I could go through the laundry list of other places. So the virus continues to move around the world. I'm not so sure that this still isn't all a, a first wave meaning that it's just an accumulation of different cases, different times, different places, but ultimately could result in what we would see in like 2009 or, or 1918. Time will tell. Uh, this is one where, again, uh, I'm sure glad I don't get paid for being right <laughs> I, because I don't know what right is here. It's more a matter of uh, what we know and what we don't know. So I urge everyone who's listening, if you have experts out there telling you exactly what's happening, where it's going, what will happen, uh, I would urge that you probably not take into consideration uh, much of the rest of their information. And I think also this situation really helps us understand um, the kinds of predictions I've made in the past. You may recall uh, on this very podcast, I had to address several times people who were adamant about the fact that there would be a summer uh, reduction in cases. The seasonality would kick in. Some of the more prominent experts said this. Well, I got to tell you right now, if you're in uh, these uh, 21 states that are getting hot, if you're in parts of the world right now where you're seeing this increased transmission, 
Uh, there's nothing here that would suggest to you that, in fact, this is a um, you know seasonal virus. It's 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 defying all of that. And so, humility is the word. Uh, intense study is a word or words for what we need to do here. And uh, you know we'll know in a in a little in a few weeks. I I think that frankly uh, I may be ready to move my metaphor from second inning to third inning and maybe even quickly through fourth or fifth, depending on what we see over the next month. I think we'll know if we're going to have a wave. If we are, what that likely means. If we're not going to have a wave, that'll be borne out too, and that will tell us then more what it is that we're likely to see for the next six, ten, twelve, eighteen months. I want to read to you a quote from Christine Peterson, an epidemiologist at the University of Iowa, that I think uh, speaks to the the mood uh, in the country right now. She told the political news website The Hill, uh, quote, I don't think there will be new shutdowns. There isn't the political will to do it any longer, it seems. Now we're in the pandemic wild west. Do you agree with that? Well, I think that uh, Christine's uh, observation was very astute. (laughs) Uh, She has put her finger on the pulse of America, and for that matter, I think many parts of the world. Um, I have to remind people constantly that, um, you know, we're just at the beginning of this situation. We're not anywhere close even to the middle. It was interesting. I was on a national uh, talk show this morning. And uh, I'd been on this show multiple times. I've talked over and over again about this 5% to get to 60 or 70%. And uh, one of the interviewers who's been on with me in previous ones, when I said that this time, he said, wow, that's eye-popping. He said, I think people are really going to pay attention to that. And I thought, well, you've heard it multiple times from me before. What finally hit home? And, and this is a very bright individual, and, and I appreciate his observation of it. But I don't think people really have understood what this pandemic means. They thought that this was going to be like a Minnesota blizzard, not a Minnesota winter. If we just could get through the next two days, everything will get plowed. All the roads will be open. All the venues back. Uh, you know, not a concern. And they've planned for it that way. They've anticipated it for that way. And so they were ready to get that blizzard over with. When, in fact, we're in a very, very long Minnesota winter right now. And this just happened to be the first late October blizzard of the long winter. And I think that what we have to figure out right now is how do we better communicate to the public that this is the case, particularly when we have those in public leadership positions who will continue to say it's over with. Uh, you know, we're just we're in recovery uh, we're about to, uh, you know, get out of this mode, the post-pandemic era. Uh, you know, we're going to have vaccines, we're going to have drugs, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we don't want to tell people that they're in the beginning of this just for the sake of telling them that, upsetting them. It goes to the very heart of how we're going to get through this as a society, as a world. And it's going to mean that we have to understand the reality of what's before us. I have found over and over again in all my years in this business that people can take hard truth. If you just tell it to them with all the honesty, all the information you have so that they can understand how you got there, then they can get through almost anything because they're not surprised. They're, they're, They're internalizing it. And this is, I think, when sometimes the human spirit is the very best. It's when you 
mislead them or tell them it's going to be different and it's not what they are told, that's when I think you have people who then have doubt. And when they have doubt, they become hypercritical, which they surely should. And that's what leads then to distrust. And so what we need to do right now is um, help share that sense of where things are at. And I think that Christine's comments are right on the mark for right now. I think she's right on. My concern is how do we help change that? And I don't know what the shutdowns or lockups or, you know, all these things we call, you know, you know, the society uh, being limited in what it can do and where it can go. But I do know that we are going to have situations that will occur with this virus that could far, far exceed anything we've seen. You know, I've said it enough times, but maybe it'll be ear popping, eye popping, I don't know which. But the matter of fact is, is that for 5% of the population having been infected, think how much pain, suffering, death, and economic disruption we've had. And we have to understand that we got a lot more to go. So that means we have to harden our resolve. We got to start planning. So what are we going to do? You know, I worry again, as I've said time and time again, if we have another big wave or we see a substantial increase in cases around the world, our PPE supplies are going to be further drawn down. I mean, I I sit here today at the at this particular recording, and at least 680 American healthcare workers have died as a result of their COVID infections. Now, we don't believe all of those were required at work, but largely uh, the majority, if not up to two-thirds, probably were. Now, think of that if this were Army, military, police, any number of people that were in harm's way, which they are every day, and and that kind of number uh, occurred in that group. You know, there would be an all-out investigation. What can we do? How do we deal with it? And I almost hear nothing but a whimper about all these healthcare workers who are giving their lives to help take care of us. That's why we can't let this pandemic go on, you know, in a sense of saying, well, we're not going to lock down again or we're not going to do this because when we overrun our healthcare systems, we do increase substantially, not only bad outcomes for the patients, but also for the healthcare workers who work there. So I think I would like to invite Christine to work with us and her astute comments to say, you're right, but let's not be right like that forever. What can we do to engage the public? Knowing that there will be a sizable number of people who will disagree upfront that this is even a problem, who will disagree that any kind of intervention we use is far too much and that we're damaging not only the economy, but society, which frankly, I agree with, but we got to find that way to thread the rope through the needle. And so um, one of the things that uh, we're going to be doing in the near term uh, for SIDRAP is actually we're developing a set of scenarios where we will describe in very plain language exactly what many of us are thinking about every day. Is it safe for me to go to my kid's house this weekend for Father's Day to actually have a picnic with my grandchildren who I've not seen since March just because of this problem? And if I do, what are my risks? I'm an old man. What are my concerns about if I get infected? What if I should bring it to them, although I've been sequestered? So 
hopefully that's not going to put me at increased risk to transmit to them. And what we're going to do with these scenarios is then play them out. You know, can I go to a restaurant for dinner? And just say, what do we know about the risk? What do we know about what you can do to reduce that risk? And how do you want to relate to that risk as it as you as an individual, meaning, am I at increased likelihood of having a severe illness if I get this? You know, what are my risk factors? And so hopefully that will also help lay out the reality of what people will want to do or not want to do and and help maybe soften that uh, wild, wild west issue of the pandemic. Well, I look forward to discussing uh, that uh, work from SIDRAP more in future podcasts. Uh, I want to get back to uh, China, which you mentioned earlier. Uh, so Chinese health officials are now investigating cl- a cluster of new infections in Beijing, the first in more than 50 days in that city, uh, linked to a large wholesale market. And just today, in fact, Chinese officials imposed what they're calling a soft lockdown on the city in response. Uh, as you've noted, we, we've seen this pattern playing out in places that seem to have the virus under control. Uh, does, does this surprise you at all, Mike? You know, I uh, I have to be a little bit, uh, how should I say, introspective here, because it's one of those things where I don't want it to come off like I told you so, um, but I'm sure you've already thought that. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that we've been talking for months about if you believe that someplace has the magic bullet, if you believe that someplace has found the way to respond to this virus such that it won't come back, just wait a couple weeks. Um, And what we have here is a situation where there is likely no country in the world that has more control over its population in terms of their movements, in terms of their monitoring, in terms of the sampling that goes on to look for influenza and looking for coronavirus so they can distinguish between the two and actually know what's circulated in their communities and yet, look what's happening in Beijing right now. As of the, this t- time right now, there's over 106 cases. Uh, they're concerned that it has already spread in other locations that they are not yet w- well aware of. Do I think that they're probably going to get a handle on this? I think they will. It's a remarkable what they can do and how they can lock people down, how they can mandate testing um, and, and restrict movements. So I think that this will happen. What I'm a little bit concerned about is something I think that's starting to develop here, um, which will be a terribly unfortunate in, um, result of this particular situation here. And that is the uh, public health officials in China actually did some sampling in the market uh, looking by PCR for uh, virus activity, which of course, as you and I both know, is not the full virus. PCR just denotes that there's genetic material from the virus there. And they actually found um, a positive sample in the market on salmon that had been imported, as we understand it, from Australia. Um, That initially was shared with the idea that, see, it wasn't from us. It wasn't our fault. It was imported back into China, you know, which is in a sense almost a kind of a way of saying, don't blame us this time. And uh, I worry that the inference that will come across is that somehow food's involved. And uh, that would be a real shame because we already have people who have a fear of this virus that uh, is not at all commensurate to how it's transmitted, uh, but rather they're worried, you know, about the environment, anything that, uh, you know, 
is a surface is therefore likely a virus culture dish. Um, and so I think that uh, I just want to emphasize to the audience here that there is no reason at all to believe that food's involved, that uh, it could very well be a sneeze that landed on that. And even then, if you consume that salmon raw, uh, the likelihood of getting infected from that is still very, 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 very low. And um, what we have to do at this point is is understand how this virus got there. They're going to be doing the genetics on the virus to try to place it into some context of what what source might have been responsible for it. But I think the, the real message is, number one, Beijing is an example of this virus is a leaky bucket virus. If there is one microscopic leak in that bucket, it'll find a way to get out and it'll come get us. I even have to raise the issue, and again, to their credit, I'll have to say this, um, we had an event that happened in the last several days in New Zealand. You know, just over the past two weeks, we've touted the fact that, uh, you know, they've done everything they can to eliminate the virus as an island country of a little over 5.2 million people. Um, you know, it's much easier to protect your borders that way uh, and control who comes in and out and what you can do to stop the virus transmission. Uh, there was actually uh, two individuals from London who had come to New Zealand uh, for the purposes of visiting a dying person. And the uh, government officials allowed them to get out of quarantine early to make sure that they made it. They had to drive five hours across New Zealand to get to this location. And only after they were gone and at the location of this person who was dying did they find out that they were actually infected. And, uh, you know, hopefully everything that they've done in New Zealand will, will continue to contain this virus. But here's a country like New Zealand has to be on guard 24-7. And so I just want to point out just how challenging this is. We can do a lot better in this country than we're doing. But when you have the sizable numbers of cases we have, contact tracing and follow-up is just going to be very, very difficult. It's one thing to think about planting your petunias in a three mile an hour wind. So I think about thinking about planting those same petunias in a force five hurricane. And uh, I think that, um, you know, right now, uh, trying to control this virus in places like the United States is a real challenge uh, with the terms of numbers of people who, who are infected, who need follow up, et cetera. And so we'll have to, uh, we'll have to see where all these go. And uh, next week we'll report again on what's happening in China. In the WHO's press conference on Monday, uh, the WHO Director General warned that the COVID-19 pandemic is creating challenges for global flu surveillance. I bring this up because you co-authored an article in Science last week on the potential of a fall surge in COVID-19 cases coinciding with the flu season. What's the main takeaway message from that piece? Well, another common theme here uh, with COVID-19 and influenza, we don't know what we don't know. Uh, in this piece that Ed Belange and I did in science, um, we do talk about how can we prepare for this convergence of the two. It is likely going to happen. We're trying to get as much information as possible right now from the Southern Hemisphere, particularly uh, in places like South Africa, where we're seeing a substantial number of cases of COVID-19, as well as potential for influenza. Uh, New Zealand and Australia, which often contribute information, as well as South America, uh, we're, we're not getting much in the way of influenza data per the fact that it has been such a major effort around COVID-19. But there are a few things that we have to be mindful of. 
Um, if in fact we do see both circulating, uh, we want to understand what kind of testing should be done so that we can appropriately treat influenza, which we have drugs for that should someone uh, be infected, could be very important in keeping them from having severe disease. Um, we also want to uh, make sure that people understand that getting vaccinated for influenza this year is probably as important as you ever had. Uh, you know, we don't know how effective the vaccine will be. Uh, you know, we some years get not very great protection. Some years we get moderate protection. Uh, but every year we virtually get some protection. And that's important that people should go out and get vaccinated. But how do you bring people together to get vaccinated if it's in the age of COVID where we're seeing so much transmission in communities? Do we want to bring people together in that kind of setting? And so one of the things we need to be really thoughtful about is when and where and how do we vaccinate the public for this vaccine? Um, this is going to be an important consideration. The other thing that we have to do is uh, best respond to what has been a growing uh, misinformation campaign in social media that indicates that influenza vaccines increase the risk of SARS-CoV infection. And there is absolutely no data to support that. And yet, if you look on social media, it has really taken off. So everyone who's listening to this podcast, please know there are no data, and we've looked, for anyone that would suggest that a um, influenza uh, vaccination will make your uh, SARS-CoV infection more severe should you get it. So one of the things we're going to be looking at very carefully over the course of the next uh, months is just trying to develop the kinds of recommendations that, one, facilitate influenza vaccination uh, in a timely and safe way. Number two is that if we do have co-circulation during the season, how can we best target getting effective uh, drug treatments to the people with influenza, uh, since there is something we can do about that one early on. And three, just trying to understand what kinds of impacts does uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus and influenza virus infections have on each other? What, what does it do? We'll, we'll, we'll not know. Um, and this is going to be uh, uh, one of those challenges where uh, we may not even see flu virus transmission. There may, may actually get canceled out like we've seen when a pandemic strain of influenza comes along and cancels out other uh, influenza strains, or it could exacerbate it and make it worse. Uh, we just don't know. In our previous discussions about masks, one of the issues you've covered is aerosol versus droplet versus airborne transmission of SARS-CoV-2. Where are we in our understanding of how the coronavirus is transmitted? Well, I think one of the things that I have come to appreciate and learn that there are always those hot button items in public health and medicine. If you get five professionals in a room, you can probably get seven different opinions on what's going on. And uh, this is clearly one of those areas where, um, you know, again, I have uh, no claim on expertise here. I would never consider myself an expert on aerosol science. Um, you know, I've taken graduate classes on the issue of industrial hygiene and air and, and uh, so forth. Um, have surely spent a lot of time with uh, people who do specialize in this area. But I find the challenge is, is that so often we have misunderstandings about what people are talking about. And it's because there is a confusing set of definitions that depending on which organization you're talking to or with, 
you may find very different meanings for those same uh, definitions. So the concept, for example, of, of whether we're talking about airborne contact or droplet and what that means sometimes means something very different to different people. And so one of the uh, suggestions that, that came to me here through uh, listeners is they'd like more information on how can I learn about this? What can I understand? And, you know, I'm not going to spend the time today to go through an entire lecture uh, from a novice on aerosol transmission and infectious diseases. But I have a series of three articles that will be in our reference list that I think you would be well to go take a look at if you have more questions or issues, because they do really provide a good framework. One of them is by Rachel Jones and Lisa Brousseau from uh, Lisa's from Sidrap now. And um, it's called the aerosol transmission of infectious disease. And it's really a very nice overview of what do we know about the issue of airborne contact and droplet transmission, um, how different viruses in particular uh, actually are transmitted and what the implications are for understanding this combination. There's another article we're including from uh, Jan uh, Grailton and colleagues entitled Respiratory Virus RNA is Detectable in Airborne and Droplet Particles. And it really describes more here of the kinds of transmission considerations and what it might mean to actually have, in this case, uh, virus uh, RNA and the implication of virus itself in these drop in these um, airborne and droplet particles. And then the final one is just understanding how we generate aerosols and droplet particles. Um, and this is an article by Lindsley and colleagues. And it's entitled Quantity and Size Distribution of Cough-Generated Aerosol Particles Produced by Influenza Patients During and After Illness. And none of these are heavy reads. I mean, they're, they're, you, you, if you're not an uh, aerosol particle technology expert, you can still read these and get a lot out of them. So I, I would urge from a homework standpoint, as we have these discussions about mass, respiratory protection, uh, you know, N95s versus surgical masks versus cloth face coverings. What can we uh, ascertain from what we know about how viruses, uh, in this case, the coronaviruses, are likely transmitted? I think this will be very helpful. So uh, we can discuss these more in another uh, episode, but I think right now those three papers on our resource list uh, that accompanies this podcast, I think will give you a, a good opportunity to really understand um uh, some of the definitions and some of the issues behind uh, the the science. CDRAP has begun an effort to better understand infectious dose of SARS-CoV-2 and how it informs our decisions about exposures and controls for preventing SARS-CoV-2 transmission. Uh, what is that effort going to entail, Mike? Well, I'm very excited about this. Uh, you know, I'm I'm kind of one of those people that uh, I always say, you know, either kind of put up or go home, okay? Um, and you all know on this podcast, I've been raising issues around the relative effectiveness of uh, respiratory protection uh, and, and what we need to do about it. Well, one of the challenges is what do we know just in general about the transmission of the SARS-CoV-2 virus and how does infectious dose and uh, issues related to exposure, including uh, the actual 
concentration of the virus in, say, for example, air and your exposure time. So in that uh, way, Lisa Brousseau, who I've already referenced here, and myself really initiated an effort to best describe what the current data that exists in terms of the infectious dose of SARS-CoV-2 and how to estimate and inform our decisions about exposure. What does it mean to go to a grocery store? What does it mean to ride in a car with someone? And then really, what can we do to control that exposure in terms of preventing disease? And so what we've done is we've invited uh, 19 leading experts in respiratory protection, industrial hygiene, virology, infection control, and dose response modeling to participate in a an effort we're putting together. Uh, it's right now we're very actively involved. All 19 uh, experts have fully agreed to participate. Uh, they're from around the world. Um, and what we're doing right now is identifying and reviewing all the scientific data that addresses the concept of infectious dose and, and the role it may play in respiratory transmission of SARS-CoV-2. Uh, while we don't know what that dose is yet, we're trying to understand it from other similar uh, tr respiratory transmitted viruses like H1N1 that caused the pandemic of 2009, and as well as animal studies of SARS-CoV-2 that have been conducted already uh, in terms of vaccine challenges and so forth. And um, we have a, already a, a organized set of questions that we're addressing as a group including what does the public need to know about infectious dose that will help them better understand potential exposures and how to minimize them. So not just a matter of tag your it in a model where two roving buttons bump into each other, but what do we really know about what it's going to take to get infected? Um, and, you know, one of the other things we're trying to do right now is identify what information that is available and what information do we still yet need to generate to understand what an infectious dose for SARS-CoV-2 is. And um, then from that perspective, we're trying to then, in a sense, model, meaning uh, to actually then take these data and say, so given different concentrations of virus in the air that might be reasonably encountered in a public setting, what are the interventions or control measures that we can look at and understand how well they work? whether they be face coverings, masks, or respirators, or, you know, dilution ventilation, barriers, such as the plexiglass uh, that we're seeing, physical distancing, which always is important. Physical distancing is the one thing I have to emphasize over and over again. It's the one thing you're at most control of, and it's the one thing that will make the biggest difference. So I'm really excited by this effort. I'm very uh, appreciative of the people who have agreed to participate when this comes out, and you see the names of these people. It's names that are very familiar now in terms of in the public eye with regard to respiratory protection. And this will be a, you know, as unbiased and as comprehensive as we possibly know. This is exactly what I was calling for in a previous podcast I did on mass. You know, we just need the data. This is not about being pro or con. This is not any of that. This is just help the public understand what is my risk? Under what conditions can I change that risk? And how can I be in control of that risk? And uh, so we hopefully will have the kind of information that will really help the public. And we will get this to you as soon as possible. We're clearly uh, working on it right now. Uh, uh, I think we actually have a call in two days at 5 a.m. 
uh, here just so we can make sure that our Asian collaborators are all on the call that day. As always, uh, we've received a ton of great email questions this week, Mike, and uh, the one we've selected is about vaccines. Earl writes, I know your position is that we most likely won't have a vaccine for COVID-19 in the near future. We hear a lot about companies or institutions in phase two or phase three of clinical trials for a vaccine. What do these phases exactly mean? And what is the approximate time necessary between phases to safely judge a vaccine's effectiveness? And do you feel that in the rush to find a cure that these companies are not following proper protocol? Well, thank you all for that uh, very thoughtful question. Uh, the only challenge is, is that could be worth a podcast unto its own as a question goes, but it's a very important one. Uh, right now, I think the public is quite confused about what's happening with these 120 plus vaccines that are all uh, in some form of consideration or research for uh, uh, protecting us against uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection. And when we talk about clinical trials, many people don't really have a sense of what this means. You know, it's not quite like baking cookies or, uh, you know, washing your clothes where you kind of can know step one through the final process. And so it is important to understand uh, what's happening. When, the, when you ask the question, how long will it take? Um, this is one of the areas where there is such an urgent need that the efforts are going, and I would say uh, with with all honesty and unprecedented uh, velocity in terms of trying to find an answer. Now that doesn't mean that they are unsafe. It doesn't mean that we're um, um, you know, going to skip over potential signals that would say that there's a problem. That could happen, but we've got to guard against that. Um, what it's saying is, is that you know, if I can double up on things, if I can be making uh, more vaccine before I ever prove that it works, um, which financially is a big hit if it doesn't work because then you just basically have to throw away the vaccine. Um, but you, for a sake of a crisis, you'll do that. Um, it's going to cut down a lot of time. We'll be able to shave time off. It's not unusual for some vaccines to go many years between the time that they start getting into early trials and before it's licensed and available to the public. Every effort here is being made to get it to as soon as possible. And I do believe there is an emphasis on safety. Now you ask, what are these phases? Well, there are basically four phases to uh, clinical trials as deemed by the Food and Drug Administration, uh, EMA, the European FDA, and how they evaluate and, and regulate products. Phase one is really a what I would call assess safety study and to get some early immunogenicity data, meaning if we give somebody this vaccine, uh, what happens with antibody? Often this is done in an animal first before it ever hits a human uh, to see if they make some kind of antibody or have some kind of immune response that would suggest that it has a potential to work. Also, did it kill the animals or not? Well, you hope if you vaccinate five, 10 animals, it doesn't kill them because that right there says, ooh, we got a problem. And so phase one can involve humans also. Phase two, which is where we're at now with some of these other vaccines, is really uh, looking at more expanded safety uh, in terms of the number of people enrolled and also looking at dosing and preliminary effectiveness, meaning that you may have some data that someone did or didn't get infected who was in this um, 
phase two trial. What this is really is kind of that middle place. Uh, you got enough data now to know that there's something possible here, but not enough data to say, do I go to a large clinical trial, which can be very, very expensive and challenging. And so this is kind of that mid call. And uh, um, this is going to be a very important point here to decide how do we move vaccines on to phase three, which is really looking for definitive safety and definitive effectiveness. And this can be a challenge because safety uh, is a relative term. Uh, what if something happens one out of a thousand times or one out of 10,000 times? How many times do you have to be vaccinated in the population before you're going to pick up that particular event? So if you're only testing and sampling among a thousand people and it occurs once every two to 5,000, you may never pick it up. And so what we have to look at is just what the anticipated side effects could be and how we would account for those in the study size. The second thing that's a challenge, and this happens unfortunately almost as if uh, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those omens about uh, the vaccine world, is if you vaccinate a population, you obviously have to have disease in that population to determine whether it works or not. And you don't want to have any disease at all. But on the other hand, if there's more disease in that population, the faster and more likely you are to learn, did this vaccine work or not? So if you vaccinate 10,000 people and it turns out the disease has just disappeared and there's only two cases in the entire country the next year, you're not going to be able to show anything about did that vaccine work or not. On the other hand, if you only vaccinate 100 people and half the population gets the infection in the next six months, boy, you may have a real chance of showing the vaccine really worked. And so one of the challenges we have is doing vaccine trials right now is when and where do you do them? Um, you know, we've already talked about the fact that there's big differences in case numbers in the United States right now. Well, what if you put all of your vaccine effectiveness study locations in the states that just happen to have few cases right now? Or you put them in an area where they're on fire. That's going to have a big impact on how fast and how complete the information will be in a certain time period. And so phase three trials can be very, very expensive, very difficult. Phase four trials typically are monitoring studies where they're collecting the information continuously on vaccine usage. They're constantly looking for any adverse events, and they're trying to measure long-term immunity. This is going to be a critical issue with this vaccine. I don't want to wait to get a vaccine licensed if I can show that after six months, there is immunity there that protects me against this virus. Boy, would I love that to be 60-year immunity. 20-year immunity. Heck, I'll even take two years immunity. But the bottom line is we won't know. And we can't wait five years to find out how durable this immunity is before we license this vaccine. So one of the things we're going to be studying is if, in fact, it does get licensed, how long does it last? That's going to be a critical issue. So uh, and safety is going to be another important piece. Uh, you know, if we're vaccinating thousands of people, what if, the again, the side effects occur at a rate such that we might miss those uh, signals about a problem and how that works. Now, I will say at that point, um, you know, if you have a vaccine that has an adverse event rate of one per million, but it, if you get vaccinated, it will save thousands and thousands of lives for that same million. I mean, the trade-off has got to be obvious. You know, no medical technology today is perfectly safe in a sense. And so we need to look at that. So we'll be following that up too. 
So to your very good question, we have a lot going on. Now, one of the issues that we're also looking at is how are how are these studies being coordinated or collaborated with? Meaning that we've got these 120 some vaccines. We've got the World Health Organization involved with a number of vaccine trials. We've got uh, Chinese government involved with vaccine trials. And we've got the U.S. government. And within the U.S. government, we have two different locations. We have what's been called Operation Warp Speed, which is largely a White House Department of Defense vaccine effort. And we also have what's called the Accelerating COVID-19 Therapeutic Interventions in Vaccines, uh, a project within the NIH itself to help move this along. We're all trying to figure out what kind of collaboration, cooperation will help here. Uh, you know, we've already seen the FDA, uh, I think, misfire on the oversight of testing reagents, uh, kits, um, we, you know, we need them to be helpful with the vaccines, but not so helpful as to miss their responsibility with oversight to make sure that they're safe. A lot, a lot of us will be looking at that very carefully. Um, uh, and then we're going to have to, uh, again, come back to asking hard questions about how will these vaccines get made? Who will have access to them first? Do we have the tools to actually make and deliver vaccines. And what I mean, I don't, just, I don't mean just the machines, but just simply glass vials. Already the world wants these glass vials, uh, not just the United States, whether you're in China or whether you're in Europe, wherever, and countries are now banking on getting millions and millions of doses should a vaccine become available. Well, wouldn't that be horrible if the one thing we ran out of was glass vials or needles? And that's being looked at right now, but I can tell you those are gonna be challenges. Uh, you know, uh, it would be terrible to have vaccine we can't deliver because we don't have those tools. So we, we have a lot of work to do. Um, you know, I think it's going as quickly as possible. I have, you know, from my perspective, I'm not seeing suggestive that safety has been an issue. I would welcome the fact that the manufacturers spend less time doing public relations announcements with their data and actually give us the data in manuscript form showing us what they really have and letting us as a scientific community look at that carefully. Uh, I, I always regret when it's a press release that brings the information out. Uh, we've already seen what happens with that and how, how fragile those kinds of pieces of information that get everyone's hopes up can be. So speaking of uh, news put out in press releases, uh, we had some news out of the United Kingdom today uh, from the recovery trial, which is a, a large randomized clinical trial with various arms looking at different COVID-19 treatments. And investigators uh, noted in news release that a, a cheap, widely available steroid, dexamethasone, uh, reduced deaths by a third in, in ventilated COVID-19 patients and in about a fifth in patients who needed oxygen. What do you make of this news, Mike? Well, having just commented on the problem with press releases and the challenges that we have in interpreting data, I also understand the need to get data out quickly uh, to try to impact on outcomes. But uh, I would rather not see it released like this. I think it would be better to get a very uh, quickly prepared peer review paper that at least allows us to uh, have a better sense of just what do these data mean? We've already been there before. You've seen that with uh, hydrochloroquine issues uh, and and where we've been. So I, I think this is a potentially helpful uh, improvement, but again, having been here before and seen 
you know, things that were supposed to be blockbuster kinds of, of changes, not necessarily being that at all. Um, it would be ideal if something like this could really help this much for ventilated patients. Remember, this is a very small sub-segment of the overall number of patients who get COVID-19, uh, but yet nonetheless, it's the one where people die. So if you could really reduce deaths by one-third in ventilated patients and by one-fifth in patients just receiving oxygen, uh, that's got to help. Now, ironically, one of the things that we would like to see here is what does that do for hospitalization? Meaning that um, from a planning standpoint, these patients may not only survive, but they will survive longer in intensive care meaning that now we could see additional burden intensive care because instead of dying in six days, you stay alive for 14 days before you get out. That's a good thing. Don't get me wrong. I, I want to see people survive. But now we have to ask ourselves, if this were to happen, what would this mean for our, our patient uh, numbers in ICU care uh, requiring these beds. And I didn't see anything on that in this press release, but it's it's one that we really need to understand what, what that did to their patient population. So Mike, uh, any thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with? Any uh, musical suggestions that you have uh, the, as you've had in uh, past episodes? Well, thanks, Chris. I think that the listeners here have become... Uh, probably expecting me to come up with a little music here. Uh, this is one of the challenges I want to offer to the group here, okay? Uh, the question of the of the week has been really helpful. Thank you, by the way. The questions we're getting have been remarkable, numerous ones. Uh, we try to read them all uh, and talk about them, and uh, this has been very helpful, and it helps us understand what you'd like to have us cover. So now I'm going to challenge you to the songs uh, or even poetry, that might end up uh, framing the end of these uh, podcasts. And this one, uh, you know, we're still in a lot of hurt in this country after the past several weeks, um, and rightfully so. Uh, and also, uh, we're in that place where we're trying to navigate COVID-19 in such a way that, what does this all mean? You know, what are we supposed to be doing? How are we supposed to be doing it? So I... Uh, I uh, have a song here that, again, has meant a lot to me in my, my uh, past. It was written in 1969 by Kurt Sopaw and Bobby Austin. It's been recorded by more than 11 artists, but the artist who really made it was Glenn Campbell. And his 1969 hit was Try a Little Kindness. And the lyrics go, If you see your brother standing by the road, with a heavy load from the seeds he sowed. And if you see your sister falling by the way, just stop and say, you're going the wrong way. You've got to try a little kindness. Yes, show a little kindness and shine your light for everyone to see. And if you try a little kindness, then you'll overlook the blindness of narrow-minded people on the narrow-minded streets. Don't walk around the down and out, lend a helping hand instead of doubt. And the kindness that you show every day will help someone along their way. You've got to try a little kindness. Yes, show a little kindness. Just shine your light for everyone to see. And if you try a little kindness, then you'll overlook the blindness of narrow-minded people on the narrow-minded streets. I can't think of a better way to say it. 
So I, again, challenge all of you on this podcast for your acts of kindness. Our epidemic is going to take over this pandemic uh, before long. We'll just keep doing at it. So please be kind today, tomorrow, until next week. And again, thank you so much for joining us. I know you have many other options to get your information from. And uh, the fact that you spent some time with uh, Chris and me is, is really a, a gift to us. So thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Osterholm. And thanks for listening to the Osterholm Update, COVID-19, a weekly podcast from the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, you can keep up with the latest COVID-19 news by visiting our website, sidrap.umn.edu.